Alrighty, hello everybody. Thanks as always for joining me this evening. The uh, typical format here is that I give a little bit of an opening, I guess you might call it monologue, and then I uh, give over the floor to commenters and call-in participants. So my uh, current status is that I am right now in Belgium, Brussels, Belgium. I spent about three weeks in Poland and came here to Brussels yesterday with the intent of attending in a journalistic capacity the uh, quote-unquote extraordinary NATO summit that was held today. I'm not sure what was supposed to be so extraordinary about it, uh, but extraordinary was apparently the official uh, designation for this particular summit. So uh, everybody there who uh, was everybody who was there, I guess, considered themselves highly extraordinary. And sadly, uh, I uh, personally was not extraordinary enough to uh, merit the granting of admission to this summit. Um, I applied uh, last week through the official uh, NATO accreditation portal, which I'm not sure if you are aware exists, but does, as I unfortunately had to discover. And uh, I applied through with the imprimatur of uh, Unheard, uh, Unheard.com, which is a it's a relatively new uh, commentary slash news slash. Uh, general purpose media uh, website in the UK that I had written for uh, pretty consistently uh, from 2020 uh, onward. And uh, since I started Substack in March of 2021, I hadn't written for them in a while, but it's now been a year since I uh, began my Substack uh, saga. And uh, after the expiration of that year, I'm kind of now freed up to do a little bit more uh, stuff with other outlets again. Uh, so was going to uh, cover the summit for uh, Unheard, uh, which is uh, you know, a good good website. If you're not familiar with it, I would check it out, as the kids say. Um, and uh, so you know, had had the proper uh, editors kind of solicitation to submit. I submitted my uh, passport information and whatnot. And uh, got an email saying uh, that due to the space limitations, uh, I was not going to be granted access. Now, <laughs> if you're unfamiliar with the NATO headquarters, it's no longer a sort of uh, modest, uh, kind of slightly dank office building that it once was in uh, Brussels. They, they just, in 2017 opened up a gleaming, spectacular new uh, headquarters in Brussels with, you know, an impressive kind of modernist design and a uh, capacious room for uh, many visitors. I have the um, square footage in front of me somewhere because I just looked it up today to... Uh, Verify, and let's see, the square footage of the new uh, NATO headquarters here in Brussels is uh, 
2.7 million square feet. Uh, but apparently, there was just not enough room to accommodate me. And now, you know, I don't want to proffer any uh, conspiracy theories about why I might have been denied. You know, I'm sure there are other, you know, very sincerely motivated journalists who are also, also uh, made to suffer the same fate. Uh, I would just note that, uh, as I might have anticipated, the journalists who were permitted to attend were of a very kind of hive-minded bent. I mean, that's a shocker, right? At least if you're judging based on the uh, questions that were asked to, for example, Biden, I, which I watched his press conference, or uh, Boris Johnson, or uh, even Jens Stoltenberg himself, the NATO Secretary General. They're all, you know, all the questions seem to be operating on the premise that the NATO intervention is good insofar as NATO is intervening in the conf- in the conflict with uh, Ukraine, whether it's shipping weapons, whether it's uh, building up its uh, so-called eastern flank, uh, whatever NATO happens to be doing militarily at the moment, you encouraging more defense spending among member states. All that is just presumptively good. And a lot of the journalists actually seem to crave even more unbridled military intervention, particularly the uh, U.S. military intervention. So um, you have this woman, Cecilia Vega, who actually has done a sim- similar thing before, I notice. Um, she's a, you know, the White House big, – big White House correspondent for ABC News. And uh, she says you – know, she basically ch- chastised Biden for being, quote-unquote, too quick – to rule out direct military intervention in this war. And she, you know, in, <laughs> not so um, subtly accused him of, quote-unquote, emboldening Putin. Um, this was the adversarial, you know, journalism practiced by uh, Cecilia Vega at today's NATO summit, thanks to the uh, credentials afforded to her through ABC News. So, you know, what is this accreditation process really? Well, it's sort of like a filtering mechanism so that, only the quote the the serious uh, journalists are allowed entry, and your seriousness is adjudicated by you know what big outlet that uh, you're sponsored by. Um, now you know I recognize that most people probably haven't heard of unheard. Sorry for the pun, um, but you know it's still a legitimate site. I mean it's fairly well known, I would think, and. All the same, I mean, don't wouldn't it maybe be a good idea to have a variety of differing perspectives amongst the journalism crew at an event like this? So to you know, just kind of puncture through the, you know, I know groupthink is kind of like cliche, but there really is a groupthink among the 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 press who are granted entry to something like this. Um. And one aspect of that group think is that to the extent that they have any criticisms, to the extent that they want to demonstrate how bold and adversarial they are, it's to sort of enjoin the world leaders or, uh, to commit to even further aggressive military action. So you have this bizarre situation where the most hawkish people at an event like this appear to be the journalists. And, they, and the most obnoxious thing is that they kind of put on this performance of you know holding power to account right um by you know 
making it seem like they're taking to task, you know, a Biden or a Boris Johnson or a whomever uh, by asking them like a pointed question. But the pointed question is tailored toward their goal of eliciting further commitments for additional military engagement. So it's kind of a anyway, joke um, or, you know, but the joke isn't that funny given the stakes. Um, so anyway, uh, I um, was directed. Uh, so I, I got this email a couple. Uh, I got this. Uh, I, I applied for press credentials last week, the day that the extraordinary uh, NATO summit was announced that on Monday I got an email saying, you know, couldn't, they couldn't accommodate me due to uh, space limitations. But I already sort of planned to come to uh, Brussels anyway, so I figured, you know, I'll show up and just see what they say. And maybe, because you know, sometimes at the end events like these, you can kind of finagle and somebody will catch you a break or whatever. So I figured I'd show up. And um, so I, I eventually made my way to the um, NATO Press Accreditation Center, which apparently is housed in the previous headquarters of NATO before they opened their gleaming new one. And um, now is managed, was uh, has been turned back over to the uh, Belgium Ministry of Defense. Uh, so I show up and, uh, you know, there are these uh, uniformed uh, soldiers, uh, Belgian soldiers, who, you know, are in charge of like rendezvousing with the NATO press office. Um, and so they come and, you know, check me out and uh, make a phone call and uh, reiterate to me, you know, actually there was this one guy who was in more plain clothes who said, you know, maybe we can get you in. It's not, you know, just, just uh, you know, hang out for a second and we'll see what we can do. Uh, so then somebody else gets called over who's in the military fatigues and he makes a phone call to somebody who knows and uh, is told that I've been just flat rejected, uh, rejected for any press credential. And then I would have to vacate the grounds immediately. I wasn't even really in a elaborate grounds. It was like a sort of an office park area. And I walked in, you know, maybe, I don't know, 100 meters off the street or something to deal with this group of uh, intermediaries to the NATO uh, press accreditation office. And um, so, you know, at that point, my options basically had been exhausted. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll go then. And walked away. And then as I was walking away, I turned around to just take a photo of the scene with my phone and then all of a sudden you know one of the belgian soldiers kind of bolts at me and says hey 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 no 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 photos and uh you know hovers over me and as he demands that i delete the photo so i mean what am i going to do in that situation i go into my photo tab my phone delete the photo he says okay now go to the deleted photos tab which i i mean i think i guess i vaguely knew existed but i hadn't even seen it on my (laughs) relatively new phone so i hadn't even seen this folder yet he has me pull that up and delete the delete it within the deleted uh, photos section of the phone. So okay, I lost that photo. Uh, I surreptitiously kind of snap another one. Anyway, <laughs> on the way out, not that it was like the most groundbreaking imagery, really, but I just kind of wanted to have something uh, to re- memorialize uh, what this supposed accreditation office consisted of. And uh, then you know I walked off, um, and. There you have it. Uh, not, I would say, the gravest injustice ever inflicted by NATO, um, but nonetheless, sort of an insight into uh, who is being allowed to uh, participate in these big confabs and uh, who isn't.
Um, I don't know for certain that, you know, they analyzed, you know, my personal history or whatnot and made a more kind of ideological or political determination that I was not to be permitted entry. Uh, but, you know, it's possible. Who's to say? Um, so that was what I did today. <laughs> uh, and also today I published a, uh, a little article on Substack that was drawn from a very interesting encounter I had in, when I was still in Poland a few days ago. Um, this was uh, last uh, Saturday or Sunday. And uh, I was at this uh, hotel restaurant area. Um, I almost felt <laughs> in a way bad because I was getting so much juicy materials from just hanging out in the hotel bar slash restaurant when really I should have been going out more. Uh, but anyway, this particular day I was just kind of in the hotel because I was working on an article and it was just in the, uh, in the restaurant area and just uh, by chance overheard an American guy uh, who's identifiable as American based on his American accent blabbing on the phone um, over his signal call, I could tell. You know, blabbing freely on the phone to somebody about how he had this very, apparently, intense kind of knowledge of the in- intricacies of the U.S. war effort in Ukraine. And when I say war effort, what do I mean? Well, I mean the proxy war that the U.S. is manifestly waging in Ukraine on a variety of fronts. And this guy was saying, you know, look, you know, he's um, considering whether to get in touch with the special operations uh, guys. He was talking about how, you know, he was he had his own uh, firm of some kind or he had his own operation that he was running. And uh, they were looking into getting a cargo plane sent from Canada. Um, He was talking about how he, you know, had um, kind of a direct line to the general staff of the Ukraine military. Hmm. Um, And so on and so forth. So, of course, when I overhear this, you know, just by happenstance. Uh, my interest is going to get peaked. And, uh, you know, once he got done blabbing on the phone, I uh, went over to him and just said, hey, uh, you know, I just I introduced myself and uh, asked to, who he was and to chat. And, of course, he wouldn't tell me. He just says, can't tell you who I am. Uh, can't tell you uh, what I'm doing here exactly or what my firm is. Uh, but uh, I did cajole him in, you know, to kind of talking for 10 minutes, even though he said that he shouldn't be talking. Um, and, you know, he, he evinced, for example, you know, a very in-depth familiarity with the Department of Defense's uh, procurement process, uh, which is like basically the contracting pr- uh, procedures of the Pentagon for, uh, you know, defense firms and whatever. And uh, he said that, you know, one of the big reasons why he could not talk to anybody about what he was doing is because supply lines heading uh, from Poland into Ukraine, where these U.S. weapons convoys are are uh, transporting their, their wares, um, they're under threat. And you know, this is a war, and everybody's got to be super careful. Um, yeah, that being said, he did proceed to yap to me for about 10 minutes. Um and he uh, 
gave a, a bunch of other thoughts and commentary, some of which I didn't uh, publish, um, but others others I did, and uh, you know clearly seemed to be very invested, including financially, in the whole deal there. I mean, he said that his operation, I overheard him saying this, was spending, quote, a mill just on the day that I heard him yapping. So just on one day this past weekend, he was spending a mill. Um, and who is this guy? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't figure it out. He wouldn't tell me. Um, and, you know, not much more I really can do beyond that, given the resources I had available to me in that moment to sort of ascertain who this guy was. But, you know, it's not like uh, he, he clearly had a big stake in what was happening. Let's put it that way. And uh, I will note that just a few days ago, the New York Times reported that um, the CIA is uh, ensuring, that's the word they use, ensuring that these crates of weaponry are going to quote-unquote vetted Ukrainian military units. Now, I don't think this guy was CIA. Um, struck me more probably as a contractor maybe involved in certain clandestine activities. Um, but, you know, who knows? And uh, I, I would note just to, when I did get the guy to describe what he was up to. He said that he was involved in humanitarian aid getting into Ukraine. And yet, you know, I heard him yapping about how he was, uh, you know, arranging these uh, body armor shipments and, and, and so on and so forth. Now, if he really is engaged in clandestine activities, then you got to question why he was so freely blabbing in a public uh, restaurant area. Um, but whoever he is uh, <laughs> or was, he is, uh, to me, was uh, proof that these war zones, uh, and particularly this sort of border region between Poland and Ukraine, are, are hotbeds for a lot of shady activity right now and a lot of profiteering and a lot of uh, maneuvering amongst spooks and all kinds of other operators who uh, stand to benefit quite a bit from this uh, proxy war effort being waged by the U.S. and who are actively trying to shroud themselves from any real scrutiny because, I don't know, I mean, maybe if they were scrutinized, the American taxpayer that is ultimately subsidizing them um, might have certain reservations about the value they're getting for their buck. Um, all right, so that uh, does it for now, uh, I guess, as my monologue goes. And we'll go to some calls. And going to start with Matthew, who is a consistent caller so go ahead please hi michael how are you i hope you're you've managed to forgive me and your generous heart for not being able to connect you with anyone from rush i mean the, i talked to a number of people margarita my my partner talked to a number of people and people are just frightened and i didn't feel like it was my place to push them you know like hot, frightened yeah 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 i mean just, just so people are aware i mean uh, on a yeah just to just yeah to, i'm not i'm not saying there are comp yeah. No, I mean just to just so people know what you're talking about, and just to give them context. And one of sure. the, my one of our earlier uh, call-ins, you mentioned that you had, you know, friend of friends or you had acquaintances in Russia who, um, I guess the way the, what you put it was, they were initially um, 
opposed to the war well, or skeptical of the yeah. war effort. But now, but after U.S. sanctions were applied, that seemed to be broad based and targeted against civilians. They kind of, as a matter of circumstance, ended up not being necessarily they soured supportive on of the, the war, but less inc- movement. Not so correct. much yeah, supporting yeah. the war, but soured on the anti-war movement because it's strange to support those who are hurting and deprecating you. Yeah, so, yeah. so anyway, so I, I asked you if you could maybe like put me in touch with any of these people, and I guess you looked into it, and it wasn't feasible. So anyway, that, that's what you're referring yeah, to, I, I mean, others who are probably, listening. I, I, just don't feel, I just don't feel like I'm in a position to lean on them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, yeah. Because I, I asked, I had uh, Margarita ask, and they just, you know, they said no, and, you know, I don't think I'm going to follow up because I, I don't know what they're going through psychologically, yeah. and I would feel quite guilty if if something happened. But anyway, understood. Case, yeah, I, I I figured I would yeah, inquire. Yeah, let's get off. Of, <laughs> we'll get off of that because your your forgiveness of me is is quite abundant in any case. Um, so one point that uh, I raised actually in the this is rather out of, out of left field, um, and I'm going to ask you one thing about the individual you overheard. Uh, one point I think is not that the kind of dissident community, if you will, that's kind of the digni- I'm dignifying you with the term that maybe, you know, we haven't earned in a, free, in a relatively free society, but nevertheless, the, the dissident community on this war um, hasn't emphasized is just analyzing the most commonly stated motives of Putin and seeing what is actually behind these. So there are three motives that, that I see as most commonly stated. None of them are, a couple of them I see as um, defensible in some ways, not just find the war, but rational and able and, and able to be satisfied in some sense as part of a peace negotiation. And then the last I see is as imperialistic and so forth. So the, the, the first thing is what he keeps talking about in terms of genocide. And, and obviously, in a literal sense, this is not true. But it is true that since 2019, there has been a very... Uh, vigorous effort to suppress the use of the Russian language in, in public spaces, including even like private business transactions un- under the law in Ukraine. So what he's referring to there is sort of a attempt to homogenize Ukraine to replace the Russian identity of a large minority with the Ukrainian identity. And um, again, I, I just don't, the reason I mention that is I don't hear much of that in the dissident media, if you will, in the, in the West. And then the other thing is this is this denazification thing, which again, if you look at that literally, it's obviously a lie. Most the vast overwhelming majority of Ukrainians are not sympathetic to Nazism. But as I and I think this one is mentioned more in the dissident media, but there is a, a there is a Ukrainian uh, part of the as we I'm sure you know there is a part of the Ukrainian military that is neo Nazi, and uh, moreover, these neo Nazi elements have been used by kind of the liberal Westernizing Ukrainians since the Maidan Revolution as kind of um, if you will, uh, cannon fodder in the fight against against the Yanukovych regime and the Maidan revolution, which was a violent revolution against a corrupt state, certainly, but um, kind of using these people as cannon fodder and then legitimating them. And many of these people have committed violence against Russians and pro-Russians, most especially in 2014 in in Mariupol, there was an incident where dozens were burned alive by them. So, I mean, maybe it's all bullshit. And, 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 as Putin has also stated, this revanchist aim about we're all one people and so on. So maybe it's all bullshit, but I think that this media should emphasize and analyze his motives, especially the non-NATO motives, which I think are more important, really. And I think it's important to emphasize his motives because satisfying these motives to the extent that they're reasonable, 
and as I say, some are and some are not, could be part of a peace agreement, which I think I hope everybody wants. But go ahead and, and respond to that. Well, I mean, you say you hope everybody wants it. It's not clear to me at all that the U.S. wants it. I mean, uh, there was this Bloomberg column by Neil Ferguson, who you, I guess you can take with a grain of salt if you, if you want, um, and I do, but it was still worth reading from a few days ago, where he reports that the U.S. is not interested in the slightest in facilitating any kind of peace deal or ceasefire and has devoted zero diplomatic resources to that end. And uh, that's consistent with what U.S. policy has been from the Biden administration. I mean, it's so it's it's bizarre in a way that you know some of the more kind of some of the lib, uh, more liberal acquaintances that I have, um, who I otherwise you know respect the judgment of, keep insisting that Biden is doing like a really good job with Ukraine, and their basis for uh, giving Biden this credit is that Biden has fairly consistently expressed reluctance to starting World War III. And I would think that would be a pretty low bar to clear, uh, but apparently it's enough for them to give him like really big credit. So, you know, if that's your criteria, then okay. I mean, I guess Biden, you know, he has not yet started World War III, so that's good, I guess, you know, in, in contrast with starting World War III, but there are <laughs> maybe some other uh, considerations that, may, uh, that would be uh, operative. One of them is that the U.S. is just not interested at all diplomatically in uh, brokering any kind of ceasefire, you know, as, as far as we could tell, as far as the available evidence shows. And um, per this Bloomberg column, the reason for that is that the U.S. is ultimately committed to engineering uh, regime change in Russia. They, they believe that the only uh, end game here is to um, execute you know, directly or indirectly, the ouster of Putin. And to, and to do that, they think they need to, quote, bleed him dry by uh, forcing him to expend more and more resources in Ukraine, at which point, I don't know, like the magical regime change fairies will descend upon Moscow and pluck him out of the Kremlin or something. I mean, who knows? Um, but either way, I mean, you, <laughs> I, I just don't take it as a premise I also that, 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 that the u.s is interested in what you're saying they're interested in or not i'm not that you're personally saying that but like you would think just in the abstract that everybody would want some kind of peace deal however that's yeah. not what the u.s is doing policy wise um even today i mean the, the you know people are you know breathing a sigh of relief or at least some were that biden didn't stride out of the nato summit and say okay we're gonna do a no fly zone now get buckle up everybody um but he did announce you know in tandem with the rest of nato that uh, they're deploying four more of these battle groups to uh, countries uh, neighboring Ukraine, and they're basically gearing up for a permanent uh, troop buildup in uh, Eastern Europe, uh, directly adjoining Russia. Um, and they're also continuing to harp on this whole concept of a potential biological, chemical, or even nuclear attack that Russia may, may commit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as, and as far as your point about the dissident media, like, I don't, I don't know, if, <laughs> far be it for me to appoint myself a spokesperson for dissident or you know, uh, dissident media or whatever. Um, but I, I mean, I've heard quite a bit of discussion of the, you know, definitely the Azov Battalion issue uh, as relates to the 
denazification grievance that Putin has expressed. Maybe a little less so about the um, proscription of the Russian language in Ukraine. I'm not sure if that's really well understood. I, I, I guess I agree. I mean, with that's what he means. A bit more. That- However, but you know, the reason why I think it's 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 justified to emphasize the uh, NATO issue is because that's really the issue that the U.S. You know, if you're a U.S. citizen or a U.S. media dissident or whatever. The thing you could petition your government to do to hopefully facilitate or help facilitate a cessation of hostilities could be around NATO, right? Um, and uh, I don't know if you consider John Mearsheimer a dissident, um, but you know, go and listen to some of his commentaries post-invasion. He thinks that it's overwhelmingly to do with yes, he does. NATO I expansion. Like he, with, he almost thinks well, that the other issues are, irre- are, are irrelevant. I mean, maybe he's wrong, maybe he's right. But I think there's a, at least a plausible argument that uh, NATO is actually more of an outsized issue than a lot of the more kind of establishment voices, to use a cliche, uh, will admit. Because if you, are, if you were to admit that, if you were to concede that NATO ex- or in slash NATO expansion or NATO kind of intrusion into Ukraine is an outsized issue – in terms of its importance as a precursor to the war, then that sort of implicitly ascribes blame to the U.S. And to them, any ascription of blame to the U.S. Is, is intolerable. It has to be this black or white kind of moral drama where Russia is the be-all, end-all sort of evil villain, and that's it. And if you depart from that orthodoxy, well, then you're a Putin apologist. I mean, you know how the formula goes. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So I agree with, with uh, much of what you said and disagree with quite a bit too. So first of all, I don't agree with the idea that it isn't important to emphasize the, um, if you will, attempt to peacefully uh, eliminate the Russian to, to basically Ukrainize Russians in, in Ukraine. So, well, I didn't say it's not important. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it, no, 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 it, no, no. It I'm not important. saying you said it's not morally important, but I think I think what you said is it's not. Um, uh, if you will, important from our vantage point of what we can do. I think we're powerful and we can broker and we give them a lot of money and we fund their military. I think we absolutely could say, okay, if Russia is serious, maybe they're not. I don't know. Maybe Putin is just a simple-minded imperialist. I don't know. But I think there are other possibilities. And if the and um, because Ukraine is doing things to Russians in this country that are violating human rights law, for example. So if, for example... Um, Russia, Ukraine would agree to respect the right of native Russian speakers, which again is if indigenous peoples in a country have a right to speak their language in social intercourse, business life, and so on, and that's being suppressed. Um, if that were respected, if uh, Donbass were given the autonomy they were promised under the Minsk Accords, would Russia stop? Maybe they wouldn't, but at least we should try. You know, we shouldn't. I guess the th- I guess the thing. Is, I guess the thing is, though. I mean, if that Bloomberg column is correct, and I think evidence is mounting to suggest that it is correct, then this is all sort of moot anyway, because the U.S. is not interested in brokering any kind of peace agreement. Right? They're interested in using Ukraine as a proxy to uh, obtain the collapse of the Putin. Regime. I mean, that, that, that's the goal. So the, that's why they're not devoting any resources to any of these potential avenues of diplomatic well, engagement. I agree with that entirely. Right? And it's absurd because Putin is, Russians are patriotic people. Even Russians who don't like Putin generally are patriotic people. And Putin is, is relatively popular. And the reason he's relatively popular is look at Russia in the 1990s, disastrous poverty rate, 
soaring rates of human trafficking, crime. Russia is now a stable society. The poverty rate has cut in like a fifth, I think. I mean, is it prosperous by our standards? No, but they're doing so much better than they did before Putin was in office. So yeah. it, it, that is why he's supported. You know, yeah. it isn't now he's an, he's an authoritarian. He's almost certainly a kill in, in terms of like personal sense of killer. So I'm not condoning him, but it, it's quite sensical that Russians would support the regime that has led their society that under under which their society has been so much more stable than under the 90s regimes the U.S. loved, you know. Yeah. By the way, I'm just going to assume that everybody in this call-in room is not condoning Putin. So nobody needs to declare that unless they are actually condoning Putin, in which case, yes, please disclose okay. that. But but if you're not condoning him, you don't need to add a preface. All right. Thanks, uh, Matthew. Yeah. And I'm going to go to the next caller. Tyler, you are up. Hi, Michael. Thank you. I'm a big fan of your work. Um, haven't been following you for that long. I think I found out about you through the Taibi Helper show. Um, but um, so two questions. One is about censorship and media and the other one about neoconservatism. Uh, first, okay. um, given the uh, modern censorship in what we call big tech, and even as, as your story illustrates today, the uh, sidelining of even smaller but traditional media outlets um, by the quote-unquote powers that be, how would you recommend someone go about embarking on a career in the anti-imperialist left media space, as we call it? How the hell do you get a channel off the ground right now? Do you have any perspective on that? (sighs) Well, sorry to do the... um dramatic sigh as I begin this answer. Um, but it is the case that I'm often asked a variation of this question and, you know, about, you know, along the lines of what advice would I give for an enterprising, you know, aspirant, uh, media member. And it's just, I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I wish I had more generalizable advice based on my own trajectory, but it's really hard to, Give it. I guess one thing that I would note is that I, I people call me dissident media or all, alternate media or whatever, and you know I can they can classify me however they want. That's fine. But I, I, I will say that one reason I'm able to do what I do is because I've always at least had it one foot in the more traditional media. Like I could write a Wall Street Journal column tomorrow if I wanted. Um, you know, I uh, started out at the Nation magazine years ago, um, which is you know more of an ideologically oriented media, but still you know it's respected within the industry as uh, legitimate, right? Um, I you know have written across the spectrum for everyone from the Spectator to the American Conservative to uh, Mother Jones, the Salons, and the list goes on. I still write for the New York Daily News uh, semi regularly. So I, I, I do think that at least tr- habituating yourself to the main, quote unquote, mainstream media in some sense is like an effective training for what it takes to have some degree of influence. And, and I, I do think that some of these alternate media types um, don't abide by just basic 
journalistic standards, and maybe some people don't think I don't either. Fine, but you know, my kind of general impression in uh, some of these people who just you know forego any involvement whatsoever in any kind of semblance of the actual kind of traditional media, they they play it fast and loose with the facts and just do a lot of speculating and opinionating, and maybe I do some of that as well, but I try to stay at least grounded in facts and empirical reality. And this, these are all kind of fuzzy sort of axioms that I'm trying to give. But I guess, you know, one thing I would maybe suggest is if you can figure out a way to have one foot in the more traditional media, that's useful. Um, because otherwise, you know, I, if I personally find it tiresome uh, that everybody and their mother thinks that, you know, they can just rant about the latest issues of the day and are somehow interesting or have anything novel to add. Um, you know, I, I try to do some original reporting pretty regularly. I mean, people don't think it's of utility or whatever, but I at least strive to do that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, just, just, just develop a, like, develop a perspective that's wholly your own and that is a product of your own, like, original thinking and analysis rather than just think just like do oh i'm an anti-imperialist therefore here's the latest anti-imperialism you know story or something um anyway that's i don't know if any of that's helpful at all but well, those are just well, well, general I'll, thoughts I'll, that come I'll to mind the question really briefly just to say like well let's let's say um you've accepted the premise that those traditional media uh actors really aren't interested in voicing any anti-imperialist uh perspectives at all given i think i think that's demonstrated by the story that you told uh, to start and secondly i think i have one reason there's a lot of tiresome well they think they're all anti-imperialist now because they're against russia i mean that to them is opposing imperialism now, or at least that's the talking but, point they try to use against anyone who has a countervailing point a, of view it's it, it's a softest argument but, but okay fair they'll go there um but, my thing is, I think one reason there's a lot of um, there's a lot of tiresome pontificating is that people look at traditional media sources who are supposedly you know accredited and revered, and these people are demonstrably obviously lying. Um, and so you you think, oh man, I could start a YouTube channel, and my takes might be asinine, and my facts might be wrong, but I won't intentionally deceive my audience on purpose for twenty years running, and that'll put me way ahead of MSNBC, right? right? Like, um, and and so I guess I guess you know for some for someone who has that kind of a perspective, you know, the the whole traditional media is a good thing and, and, you know, the uh, pontificators are I guess, you know, with the truth. Like that, that just seems like a backward kind of way. I guess way it's hard for me to recommend things that I wouldn't consume myself. Like I, I wouldn't consume listening to a guy rant on YouTube for 45 minutes where he's just sort of like doing this scattershot pontification you know that doesn't seem to be grounded in much of anything intelligible um so i mean maybe there's a circumstance where i would listen to that and if you're the man or i'm not maybe it's not you personally but whoever if you're the person who can actually do that in a compelling way such that i would want to consume your content then more more power to you but i i, I am increasingly kind of tuning a lot of that out and find other ways of 
consuming information. But that said, you know, if you're if you feel that you must do something uh, in in the media, I mean, what, the one the one thing I tell people to do when they ask me a variation of this question is like, if you can imagine yourself doing anything else, do that. But if you can't imagine yourself doing anything but <laughs> media, then yeah, forge ahead and hopefully uh, something materializes eventually. Um, but it really, it really ought to be only a matter of like sheer uh, exigency that you pursue this. Okay. Um, yeah. um, and and I'll, I'll dovetail that with my next question, and then I'll try to make it concise and, and get off here. Um, but the um, what the point I made about you know obviously lying for decades on end is that this. The one thing that's really scary to me and one thing that I'm concerned about, you know, adding adding a voice to counter it is this resurgence that I see recently in the media of neoconservatism. Um, mm-hmm. There was even an article re- re- written recently, and I forget the asshat who wrote it, but like, uh, you know, saying saying that, that neo- given given all these events and the, the horrible tragedy that we're seeing unfold, neoconservatism as a philosophy has been vindicated. Well, yeah, that was and John me, Pod, that was John Podhoretz, who was one of these scions of a neoconservative familial dynasty, uh, well, writing in uh, Commentary magazine, which his father Norman Podhoretz uh, founded as a organ of neoconservatism. So, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't just some schmuck making this claim. It was somebody at the center of organized quote unquote well, intellectual well, well, neoconservatism, such as it exists. Uh, you know, from my own perspective, I think anyone in the modern day willing to be associated with that word is a complete schmuck. But th- that's besides the point. Um, to me, it's it's obviously it's been militaristic imperialist neocons who have been pushing further and further and further aggression, not just in Eastern Europe, but all over the damn world for the last 20 years. And it seems to me that you're talking about the possible goal of, of NATO or, or the Americans in this situation earlier. And I thought, to me, I think the ouster of Putin itself and the whole bleed him dry thing seems like a, seems like a, a somewhat fortunate, uh, happy uh, consequence or, or coincidence from their point of view. It seems like clearly their governing ethos at this point is the same thing that it's always been, which is higher profits for defense contractors. Is that wrong? Um, well, I mean, in the case of neoconservatives, which is a pretty rarefied group, I mean, let's not exaggerate how many of them are. I mean, the one thing that's really notable about neoconservatives is that despite their small numbers, they've had enormous influence because they're able to insinuate themselves into different political coalitions, right? So when they were more affiliated with the Demo- with the Republican Party, you know, there was never like a natural reason why it should be the case that these neoconservatives who originated from, uh, you know, ex-Marxists um, who ended up having a critique on social policy and uh, foreign policy, there was never a natural reason why like hardcore American nationalists and um, – Liber- you know, small government libertarians and so on and so forth should have an alliance with these neoconservatives. But they did because the neoconservatives are very expert at uh, coalition forging. And then 2016 rolls around and there's a um, there's a kind of reorientation of the neoconservatives in terms of who is a feasible coalition partner. It was more increasingly the uh, Democrats. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't always necessarily the case that they had no connections to Democrats, but you know, given their revulsion to Trump on a personal level, and given um, their 
refusal to accept Trump as a reliable steward of American hegemony. They gravitated more toward um, Hillary Clinton in 2016. So you had Robert Kagan famously, who is the husband of Victoria Nuland, who is now what the, I think the number three person in the State Department uh, and is basically running uh, Ukraine policy in a lot of respects. Um, her husband, Robert Kagan, formerly allied with the Bush administration over Iraq, he then starts holding fundraisers for uh, Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. You know, Bill Kristol is probably the most prominent kind of public voices in terms of being a TV pundit and writing and on the Weekly Standard and all this. He uh, ends up embracing the Democratic Party uh, more out of primarily revulsion to Trump, but also seems to be adopting maybe some Democratic Party just views uh, that you know that would be standard fair Democratic kind of platform stuff, even notwithstanding Trump. Um, and uh, even Paul Wolfowitz uh, ended up endorsing Hillary Clinton, if memory serves, uh, in 2016. Um, so but, but it's a pretty rarefied group. Like the, one of the ironies of neoconservatism is that it's never really had a broad-based constituency in the electorate. They've always had to kind of glom onto other coalitions uh, to make it so that their prior priorities could be uh, enacted. And like George W. Bush, for example, himself was not personally a neocon, right? He ended up uh, uh, executing neoconservative designs, but he wasn't like ideologically uh, a neocon. Um, and so I, I don't think so, – so neoconservatism, at least in the sense of foreign policy uh, in particular, is like an ideological project, right? So I don't, I don't think it would be right to just attribute – their ultimate goal to uh, making money. I mean, that's an ancillary thing in their minds. Yeah, it's fine if our friends in the defense sector end up having a bonanza because NATO is expanding even further or because we have to, you know, uh, cajole our European allies into uh, spending more on defense. Um, you know, that's all great. And uh, maybe the... Um, Revenues will help fund additional uh, think tank expenditures and uh, sinecures and stuff, but really, it's a it's an ideological uh, goal uh, on their part. Of uh, you know, it's just how they envision the uh, entrenchment and expansion of uh, U.S. hegemony to you know spread demo- quote unquote spread democracy and what whatever. I'm sure they would love to democratize quote unquote uh, Russia in the near future if they could. Um, I think that the, the, the whole profiteering motive, which is huge, um, especially as it relates to this Ukraine conflict and the uh, potential for increased defense expenditure throughout uh, Europe and also the U.S. I mean, um, we're going to see huge increases in the defense budget in the U.S. as well. Um, that's sort of separate and apart from the neoconservative ideological goal, even as it kind of conveniently interfaces with it. I'm not sure if that made sense. Well, I would say, okay. Um, what is the ideological goal of neoconservatism, if not increased profits for defense? I mean, if, is it just the militarism for its own sake? And the, well, and I the mean, profit, the thing about Iraq, I mean, the idea, the, uh, the democracy, promo- I mean, read George W. Bush's 2002 State of the Union address where he like puts forth the so-called freedom doctrine, 
where uh, American military might was going to be deplo- deployed around the world to uh, recreate American democracy, even the, the most far-flung places like Iraq, and then eventually um, Iran and uh, North Korea. That's the axis of evil, right? I mean, the, <laughs> the, the end point of the axis of evil was to make it so that democracy could be installed in these places. And what does democracy mean? Well, it means a new uh, nation state that, even if it's you know maybe not quite perfect democracy is still subservient to American sort of geopolitical hegemony. Um, so I think that's that's the that's the more ideological dimension. I think that the the profits for the defense sector is sort of runs in tandem with that, but it's not as straightforwardly ideological as a go- of a goal as is democracy promotion, um, which often does tend to be just code word for American uh, hegemony. Um, like Matt Taibbi had, I, I know you said you heard me heard about me on Taibbi's podcast. I don't know if you, he had a piece last week on on this topic, and I, uh, he I, quote, I, I read that in. Wilson oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, he he uh, quoted um, this sort of treatise that was put out in the late nineties by I think it was uh, co co written by Crystal and Kagan, right? And it was around. <laughs> Uh, that basically laid out the ideology, which is that you know we have to even go to do uh, regime change in Beijing eventually, and all this is you know democracy. The, the ostensible ideological goal is democracy promotion. Maybe they do believe in that to some extent, uh, but really, it's all about democracy in service of American hegemonic dominance the world over. Um, so I mean, I guess that would be the most distilled way to to put it. Okay, when yep. you mentioned the the Bush uh, speech and and uh, the the article by uh, Crystal, uh, I mean, honestly, I'm 38. Like I watched that speech live when I was in high school. But like, yeah. you know, for, for me, my whole my whole life, it's always been like, oh, this stuff they say about democracy is just obvious lies. Like these aren't nice people who want good things for uh, uh, other people around the world. Like these these are monsters who are killing people and using this this language to justify their monstrosities. So what's the real goal? It's always apparently seemed to me that like just making money was the only thing that you could ju- could justify this. But but per- perhaps I'm off base. You, you, you're, you're, you're you know I, I, I today. Yeah, I, I don't think they would have been successful if they were just sheer profiteers. I mean, definitely there are a lot of people who have profited on the basis of this, these ideological constructs that they've promulgated, right? But I do think that there is something uh, beyond that. And, and, you know, it's... They write they write about it explicitly. I mean, they're not... They're, they don't try to hide it. I mean, you could just discount it all as sheer lies to mask their just profit ambition. But I, I think that might be a little bit of an oversimplification. All right. Uh, thanks... Yep. And by the way, I don't, I don't agree. <laughs> it's not to say that I agree with them. I just that you know what their stated rationale is should to be taken seriously if you're to do it like an analysis of what they're trying to accomplish. All right, uh, thank you, Tyler. Going to go now to uh, Suze. Suze, you're up. Hi. Um, yeah, I don't really have a question or anything. I just wanted to say thanks so much for all the work that you're doing overseas. Uh, it really pisses me off to all the hate that you're getting on Twitter and appreciate that you just seem to be some one of the type of people that you're going to say what you want to say and what you think is right no matter who's telling you that's wrong um, and like we need people like that now more than ever uh, 
and also just want to say that Mateo in the chat is a real coward. If he actually believed anything he was saying or thought he was right, he would probably uh, try and actually talk to you about them. Instead, he's just being a psycho. So, thank you. <laughs> well, uh, I've, I've talked to Mateo before. I'm not sure what he's up to now in the chat, but... Yeah, let him let him have a field day, and uh, thank you also just for your general uh, compliment. It's nice to hear every now and then because, uh, as you mentioned, I do get a lot of vitriol online, but it's okay. You know, people think they can attribute all kind of nefarious or corrupt or bizarre motives to me, and really, what my motive is, at least in insofar as I'm conscious of it, is just to you know do the best uh, job that I can do on things that are important and you know it really boils down to that um and you know not much you can do about the hatred uh, i try to make myself available to reasonable critique pretty often um to the point where i've directly offered trolls the opportunity to you know face to face present their grievances to me whether on youtube or whatever and um, very seldom do they take that opportunity, and they they'd rather troll. I, I, on occasion, I, it, it's actually materialized, um, but by and large, no interest. Uh, so that's fine. Um, but I'm always happy to uh, engage in a, you know a sensible way. So uh, thank you, Suze. All right, uh, Carol, you are up. Hi. Hi. Uh, you can hear me, right? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Uh, regarding the previous caller, Tyler, I was just thinking that I'm wondering if there is, if Biden is actually a neocon. Um, you know, it, to me, it seems like there basically is no difference between him and someone like Lindsey Graham or John McCain. What do you think? Well, I mean, I don't think that's quite true. I think uh, Lindsey Graham and John McCain are are and were uniquely kind of psychotic on foreign policy. So I'm sure you saw a couple weeks ago Lindsey Graham tweeting his call for the assassination of Putin. Um, you know, I think if I, I, I can't see Biden making a declaration like that at least publicly. Well, he called uh, I do think he called, he that called is true. Him. I mean, Biden has up the anti anti rhetorically. I'll, I'll grant that. I just think that. Graham and um, McCain are sort of unique in their <laughs> psychosis. Uh, I, I like if uh, I think if like Lindsey Graham were president right now, he did run in 2016. Remember? Um, yeah. That I think um, you know we'd be much we'd probably be further along on the precipice to World War Three if not having started it outright. So I think there are gradations. Um, I wouldn't just kind of neatly equate Biden with those those two figures. Uh, that said, you know, as the center of gravity shifts toward more and more uh, hawkishness, Biden tends to follow along, although maybe like one or two steps behind a gram, right? Um, so it's not like there's that much of a difference uh, in that like they're in a different stratosphere or something, but there's, you know, in the realm of foreign policy, even small gradations of difference can um, be pretty significant. So... Um, you know, I and even he, yeah, and I even even graving even Graham and other Republicans, right? I mean, they got together and were rallying around this idea that Biden should facilitate the transfer of these MiG jets from Poland into 
Ukraine, and uh, at least thus far, Biden seems to have resisted that. And uh, you know, so you know, that's something that Lindsey Graham probably would have done if he were president. Um, so, I think, goal, yeah. I think the goals are the same. They, I think, Biden too wants regime change in Russia and in China. I think that's the goal of U.S. foreign policy. You know that I don't. I don't see that they want to share, you know, like have this multipolar world. I think that they want to remain the sole superpower. So Yeah, I think you're probably right about that in terms of their ultimate goals. I just think that the tactics employed in pursuant to that goal are, are pretty significant if it means either starting a wider war right now or not. So, it, you know, those those differences are of are consequential, uh, even if, yeah, they probably do amount to something approximating the same thing in terms of, uh, you know, regime change in Russia and even ultimately uh, China, potentially. Um, although Biden in his call with Xi, uh, at least if you read the synopsis that they released, uh, stated that he has no interest in changing the government in China. But um, they don't but, believe him. And I wonder yeah. if, you know, like Biden, you know, even the Chinese media and the Chinese le- Xi himself said, you know, you you say these wonderful things, you know, and everything. But then your uh, the people, you know, your staff people or whatever, they're not um, on the same page. So it's like either Biden is and, you know, like people like Newland and Blinken and these people are not on the same page. And he's saying, you know, all these appeasing type things. And then they come along and just, uh, you know, throw hatchets at uh, Xi and Putin. Yeah. You know, so I don't know which it is. I don't know if they're well, all like, um, the same, same page and Biden is lying or what. Like uh, Hillary Clinton, for example, was not a neoconservative. However, she was a li- enough of a liberal interventionist that she could easily incorporate outright neoconservatives like a Kagan or a Crystal into her governing coalition. Um, Victoria Newland used to work for Dick Cheney, and now she's in the Democratic administration. So there's a lot of sort of uh, malleability in terms of how these operators situate themselves politically. Um, so, you know, Biden doesn't have to be a neocon in order to be kind of in accordance with certain neocon objectives. And I guess not, maybe it doesn't matter ultimately how much you, uh, doesn't ultimately matter how you precisely categorize these people. But I think maybe in the interest of just specificity, it's worth okay. being a All little right. bit clear. Anyway, um, thanks, Carol. I'm going to go to uh, Kusha. Hey, uh, good, uh, good afternoon, Michael. Thanks so much for coming to me. Pleasure speaking. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. One thing I was really curious about when I saw Yarmus Varoufakis' tweet recently was the fact that, and I saw news articles about it afterwards, I was looking um, more curiously, about Putin's demand, very recent one, that uh, Europe, uh, namely much of Western Europe, will need to pay for oil and gas in rubles. And I'm really curious what you believe the implications will be as a result of this, if this is something that likely you predict will uh, lead to uh, Europe acquiescing to Putin more so, or I have no clue, I, and maybe you don't either, but i really like to know what your analysis is about what is likely to happen, what the course of action is to happen. If this was, for Putin's own str- uh, strategizing and politicking, a uh, very clever tactic that's going to uh, continue to benefit him in this uh, brutal invasion of Ukraine, or if um, the NATO faction is going to outmaneuver him, because... 
obviously, I, I think both sides have war criminals aplenty. And you mentioned Hillary Clinton. I see her as the destroyer of Libya. And uh, I believe they all need to be tried on war crimes. I think what Lindsey Graham did by tweeting that Putin should be taken out in brutus fashion, referencing like back in the days of Rome, uh, Julius Caesar and all that. I think that's very dangerous because um, obviously no one wants that exacerbation of uh, thermonuclear destruction of the planet. And at the same time, uh, I believe what's best for the people of the world is for mass murderers like Putin and Hillary Clinton to be put on trial uh, through an international court. Of course, the U.S. undermines that lockstep and barrel by not even really wanting to partake. Like we know during the George Bush, W. Bush administration, there was the Hague Invasion Act signed. Um, what's yeah, what's yeah. referred to as and all that. But I'd really like to hear your thoughts on that. About my former question about the rubles and whatnot. Yeah, you know, I actually hadn't heard about that. Uh, so I have to look into it more. <laughs> um, I guess just as a first blush impression. Uh <laughs> You know, it does. I mean, in, in listening to some of the the uh, fallout or, or some of the output from today's NATO summit, like I, I did hear Boris Johnson discussing how Europe is more and more intent on extricating itself from Russian oil, um, and I don't see any reason to doubt that their intent to extricate. Um, so maybe that was just sort of. I don't know, a, uh, a way for Putin to emphasize that much of Western Europe is still reliant on Russia for oil exports. I mean, I, I don't really know. I, mean, I just have to look at, at the details. Um, at the same time, you know, what, you know, one of the big criticisms that Republicans have of Biden right now is that he's not doing enough to make it – he's not unleashing the American energy sector enough because they, they're claiming that there's a huge opportunity. Maybe they're right uh, for uh, the American uh, energy sector to be uh, fueling Europe, you know, take over where the uh, Nord Stream 2 left off in Germany, for example. Um, yeah. And I, I – you know – I think we're we're well past the point of no return where there's not going to be any reintegration of Russia into the ordinary kind of world order, uh, economically, diplomatically, or otherwise. Um, so, you know, this seems it seems like it's all headed down that that path. Um, so, I don't know. Maybe Putin is trying to point out some kind of uh, hypocrisy or inconsistency in that. I'm not sure. I have to look at it a little bit more detail. But yeah, I I think one thing that. Another thing you raised that made me think about the energy situation is how bad faith the Republican actors are, especially the Republican elite. But so much of it is rooted, firstly, on the basis that climate, the climate crisis is not real. So on that sense, it proceeds from there. Further, obviously, energy independence, I think, with the current material conditions makes sense because the power that dictators, whether those are like that of the United Emirates, United Arab Emirates, Mohammed bin Zayed, I believe is his name, or like it's people such as um, the Islamic Republic of Iran, Khamenei, or people like uh, the uh, Saud family in Saudi Arabia, and so on and so forth. If you have a, a robust green energy system of solar power, wind power, hydroelectric power, geothermal power, hydrogen fuel cells, and whatnot, then the need to rely on oil and gas so uh, fervently is reduced. Of course, there needs to be a transition period, and I think the brilliant, most brilliant scientists need to be uh, 
dedicating as much of their time as possible on that. And of course, the political system needs to enable that. But at the same time, I think that given the current situation right now, like, uh, you know, wouldn't like having more oil and gas production right now for different countries would make sense because now, obviously, the Biden administration has zero leverage. You can't even get United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia to return his calls. Obviously, the media for the U.S. mainstream used to be demonizing Maduro. And now it's a little softer because they're trying to get some oil deal going and so on and so forth. And uh, I, I'm really curious to know what your thoughts are about that when it comes to the energy system and its implications in the current crisis. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, again, one of the big criticisms that the Republicans have put forward of Biden, in addition to these just general complaints that he's not projecting enough strength or whatever, which are, which are sort of in, incoherent points, but you know, they went berserk when yeah. that uh, diplomatic mission was sent to Venezuela with the aim, apparently, mm-hmm. of... Uh, Bringing in more uh, oil exports to compensate for cutting Russia off. I don't even. I'm not even sure what ever came of that necessarily. <laughs> um, yeah, like apparently nothing, um, because yeah, that would have been a gift wrapped attack for Republicans. That you know, Biden is so weak and so um, so unwilling to unleash America's energy potential. He's kowtowing to the dictator in Venezuela. I mean, the attack ads right themselves. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I'm not sure what to add more, uh, other than, yeah, I think this, uh, extrication between, uh, Europe and Russia on, an, uh, on the basis of, uh, energy seems to be proceeding. And, uh, there's going to be a lot of, speaking of profiteers, a lot of profiteers in the U S in particular, who uh, see a really enticing, uh, market opening there. Um, but anyway, yeah, thank you, sir, as always, for the call. And we're going to go now to Chris. Hey, Michael, can you hear me? This is Chris. Yeah, I can hear you. Um, you're going to – I'm uh, just going to tell you that you're going to get arrested taking pictures of, uh, <laughs> of military bases, dude. <laughs> I'm going to get arrested? Yes, yeah, a standard practice. I just sent you a – I sent you a uh, – I've been I've been detained three or four times for taking pictures of uh, prison. Oh, is this days. Chris Arnotti? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, don't you go usually go by uh, Pablo or something on this? Uh, Miguel, my middle name. Oh, Miguel. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's standard practice in the U.S. to not photographs of military bases and military installation or anything military adjacent, including prisons, is, is illegal. Um, well, it's I don't really agree with that. Well. I'm just telling you it's the rule. <laughs> it's the law. Um, I think you have picture. Not, I mean, in the U.S., it's not the law to stand on a public sidewalk and point yes, your is. phone uh, at a military uh, installation and take a photo. It's not, yes, it's not it against is. the law. Yes, it no, is. No, it's not. I mean, okay, well, then let's see the case law where that's I just that's sent you. I just sent you the picture. You can look at it online. I, I, I Look, I'm, I'm not agreeing. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not as familiar with the uh, the law in, in Europe. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's yeah, different. And, and Europe is worse. The U.S. is the well, most yeah. lean. U.S. Look, I've been taking pictures now for 15 years around the world. U.S. is the most has the most expansive laws on where you can take pictures. And even well, yeah. here, I've had my camera taken away from me when I took a picture of a, a prison. 
um, from, from, from a road. I have um, too. I had a National Guardsman in the Port Authority. Yeah, I, I've, I've had snatch my phone out of my hands. I took a picture of a, a nuclear power plant because I liked the setting. It was on the Missouri River. And three months later, or two months later, FBI agents came to my home. Uh, so I'm just telling you. Uh, if, well, if I, haven't not, been, I, haven't, I haven't been arrested yet. And the poll, and the, I saw a lot of trolls on Twitter trying to alert the uh, Polish. I'm, send, I'm sending you a picture. Police. I sent, on Twitter, I sent you. Here's a sign of the of the military base in Albany. There's a military base in Albany that took a picture of. The sign says, "I can read it to you." Uh, blah, 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 blah. Pursuant to the provisions of Section 21 Internal Security Act of 1950, unauthorized entry is prohibited. All person vehicles entered. Photographic, photograph. Photographing, making notes, drawing maps, or graphic representation of this area or its activities is prohibited unless specifically authorized by the commanding officer. You'll see that sign on um, prisons have the same same sort of sign. Um, uh, look, I'm not saying those. those Will you come bail me out of Belgian jail? <laughs> Dude, I'm just telling you what's gonna. I'm just telling you that you're you're just. I'm just giving you a warning that this is standard practice. It's even worse in the U.S. It's even worse it's in Europe. I mean, it's not. It's not. It's not exactly standard practice because I've taken photos of lots of military and yeah, because in general, what happens in the U.S. Is and it's not. They don't. They don't care usually. I mean, it just well, because, right. So it's not standard practice. Well, it's so. not. It's not because they don't care. It's because they just don't have people around to do it. And, it's, and you know, again, it's with life, with cell phones. All right, well, if they want to come tr- hunt me down and arrest me, then we'll have to deal with it. But it hasn't happened yet, and I've done it in now uh, Poland and uh, Belgium. Uh, I would I love to, I would what? love to see NATO order my arrest because I took a photo of their dopey press accreditation center. It's not going to happen. Be, that be That's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is you're going to run into <coughs> you're going to run into a guard with a bad day who has a big ego and he's going to arrest you. So I'm just all telling right, you well, where we'll you, see. I'm telling you, telling you where you stand. That's all. All right. Well, you're, you'll be my first phone call then in jail. <laughs> I'm not bailing your ass out. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Chris. Bye. Arnold. Uh, Henry, you are up, and you are the last caller. So, congratulations, and uh, make it make it worthwhile. No, oh, there's one more guy. We'll go. So we'll go. To oh, Tom can you hear me? Yep. Oh, sorry about that. This is the first time I'm I'm doing this. Um, yeah, that's a great deal of pressure. I don't think I'm going to live up to that. But um, it's okay. It's it's not it's not really that <laughs> weighty of a task. Gonna- Yes, I, I think we just saw an example of what I think is called a concern trolling. Um, well, I yeah. know Chris personally, so for, from him I can take it. But right, for the mo- good stuff. But for others, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, well, first I was, I was just going to reiterate what Sue's said. Um, yeah, I think you are. It, it, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think you. You. The work that you're doing is really appreciated, and um, I did. I, I was actually just curious if you had any thoughts about. Um, I've, uh, this is sort of, it's, it's obviously a trivial matter, um, but you deal with it every day. It's just like the degree of hatred that, uh, <laughs> it, and it, it's like, uh, it's unmatched, um, especially from like, yeah, the Sam Cedar types or the, whatever you want to call them, Chapo adjacent sort of people, you're sort of, uh, and it, it, it does boil down to the sort of adolescent framing of, um, you being a dork or, um. Uh, but it, it's just, uh, I don't know, it's just to, to levels that I, I, don't, I don't actually see any other person 
um, receiving the kind of um, visceral uh, hatred. Anyway, it's just um, I, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> you know the thing. The thing is, I'm, again, as I mentioned before. I'm happy to deal with any reasonable criticisms people have. Of course. I think, I'm, I think I'm unusually open to that amongst, like, the punditocracy. But the, the, the trouble is I can't really pry any reasonable criticisms out of them. It's all this, like, impressionistic, as you mentioned, sort of high school nonsense that doesn't actually amount to anything other than, like, they just – don't like me on a visceral level, which you know, okay, fine. I mean, I don't have to be universally beloved, but yes. you know, if they're if they're if they're purporting <clears throat> to be advancing some sort of political critique, then do you think they can like articulate something coherent that could be rationally uh, entertained? And it just can't be. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I'm assuming there has to be somebody out there in this cohort that you're kind of you know alluding to that will be able to present a reasoned argument against me but i i really haven't i really struggle to to find it um yeah. i mean just you know, with, with the stereotype i mean i don't even want to get into it but it's so ridiculous what they, they they just do like the most inane petulant gossip stuff yes um and you know what is there for me, me really to respond to uh, yeah just as an outsider you get the impression that this is sort of like uh people that all went to the same high school i mean it, it's so um Gossipy that it's just from an outsider, it's just sort of totally um, unintelligible or like totally um, baffling. Um, anyway, but the 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 other thing that I was and I I really um, I think you've been doing really great work. Uh, I have family in Central Europe, and I don't think many people in the West or the Anglosphere actually have a sense of uh, the hysteria. Uh, yeah. especially, especially in Poland and places like the Czech Republic uh, and Slovakia and the Baltic states, the um, Putin has come to represent um, a figure of like manifest evil, or it's um, the the Russia, the Russian Federation has taken the place of the Soviet Union, and they define their identity against Russia. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, it is, I've, I've been speaking to family in Central Europe, and um, it is almost like a mania. And uh, I was just wondering... Where, I just, and, where in, and where in Central Europe exactly? Czech Republic? Czech Republic, yeah, Czech yeah. Republic. Okay. Um, but it's just uh, their whole identity is defined against uh, the Russian Federation, which in their mind is the, Sov- is the inheritor of the Soviet Union. Um, so yeah, every time you talk about speaking, when when you do have the chance to speak to Polish citizens, I do find it very refreshing that people are able to see how um, I know hysterical sounds quite rude, but well, yeah, I was going to say, you know, I hesitate to label it hysteria just because I don't want to come across as being sure dismissive um, yeah. or like unduly dismissive because you know as has been explained to me now many times you know it is the case that for example in poland where i've just been three weeks you know uh, polish history is so fraught with tragedy and you know but where warsaw where i was was you know completely destroyed during world war ii and then you know they've become subjects of the soviet empire for decades and like i just don't have that experience as a resident of the u.s so i don't want to be i don't want to come across as kind of flippant in uh, dismissing it however 
th- there does seem to be an undercurrent of what I think would have to be called paranoia, just in terms of how mm-hmm. they inter- interpret the ultimate aims of Putin. Like, I don't see much in the way of evidence that Putin intends to invade Poland, for example, whereas you know, he did set the stage ideologically and politically for the invasion of Ukraine. And maybe exactly. he will invade Poland. Who knows? I mean, I've seen that floated actually recently. Um, I don't know. So, that, and you know, that <laughs> I want to retain some humility, uh, and therefore not like dismiss projections about what might happen in the future as just unbridled hysteria or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're right that this is a common opinion. I guess you know, interestingly, the most common uh, the most common perspective that I encountered amongst polls is yeah, I mean, there are this there is this contingent of the very you know. Unfortunately, it's an uncharitable way to put it, but, you know, paranoid types. But the most common reaction I got when I would ask just a random citizen about the situation, these tend to be younger people. They were just like, oh, I don't even want to think about it. Like, they didn't even want to discuss it. They just wanted to block it out of their minds because they just, you know, didn't even want to really think about what was potentially possible um, uh, just because, you know, they have been – kind of inculcated with this fear that, you know, Poland itself is existentially uh, in, in jeopardy. And, you know, maybe that's wrong, maybe that's right, but that's the fear that, that's been imparted to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Um, you know, and on the, on the point of, like, uh, hysteria, before I forget, I forget, you know, on my last night in uh, Warsaw, uh, so two days ago, I, I met separately with somebody on the like what you might call far left in Poland so and then somebody on the far right so back to back i had these just yeah. ran, random meetings and they were but they were both united of course in using the same word to describe the prevailing sentiment in Poland right now which is madness they both said it independently of one another because they're they're in the fringes and being against kind of the main orthodoxy right now in terms of Polish uh, view of the Ukraine situation, right? But they, they both, but they both had, their, their analysis was the exact same of the uh, just tendency right now in, in Polish uh, society. So, Yeah, I just found it. it, when you spoke to people, I just found it really refreshing that even uh, women demonstrating outside the U.S. Embassy or the U.S. Consulate, wherever it was, um, calling for the no-fly zone and everything. So that was... Uh, I'll just jump off now, but um, uh, you you may be interested. Scott Ritter did a very good uh, long interview with Aaron Maté and um, Max Blumenthal, and he referenced an, uh, an article he wrote about Article 4 of the NATO... Of, of NATO? Not, not yeah, Article I 5. Oh. I read that article, yeah. Article oh. 4, yep. Great. Well, I just thought it was relevant to Poland and the consulting process and them trying to introduce or bringing up... Yeah. peacekeepers and that sort of stuff. All yeah, right. people, people should look up that article that Henry just mentioned because it, it's uh, another sort of route to potential escalation that exactly. doesn't require the invocation of like of this Article 5 collective defense exactly. power that people are more familiar with. Uh, there's sort of more uh, different avenues to escalation that Ritter sort of outlines in terms of the composition of NATO. So, yeah, Google that. Um, anyway, thanks, thanks Henry, for the compliment and for the uh, and for the Comments. All right. Good luck. Good luck. All right. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, well, that'll do it for tonight, everybody. Thanks again for uh, joining. Um, like I said, I'm going to be uh, in Brussels here for the next uh, couple of days just to sniff stuff out if I can. Um, take a look at the Substack from today if you're interested. 
and uh, we will reconvene relatively soon. So uh, take care. Bye-bye.